Some people say business can be a force for good. From where I stand, the system is still very much extractive. The bucket is leaking, and many people have to pay the price and suffer because of that. So where do we go from there? Hello, my name is Sylvain Moisan, your host on Be and Think in the House of Trust, a podcast for people who love to invest in social and environmental change. Together, we think about what makes sense, what doesn't, how to show up, and think hard about how we can activate change. And I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Melanie Reback in the House of Trust today. She's the CEO and co-founder of Radically Open Security, the world's first non-profit computer security consultancy company. She also co-founded Nonprofit Ventures, which is an incubator focused on supporting post-growth startups. Melanie is an accomplished academic and an amazing teacher, and I'm a huge fan of her course on post-growth entrepreneurship at the University of Amsterdam, which is available for free online. And it's not just talk. She does bring tangible evidence that change is happening. In this episode, she shows you how. So drop off your coats and settle in. Welcome to the House of Trust, Melanie. Thank you so much. So now let's, Melanie, let's just dive in straight away. If someone from the future were to introduce you briefly, um, what would they say about you and what you've accomplished? Oh, <laughs> you know, that's, I think, a tough question. I mean, I sort of like to think of myself as being kind of almost a systems integrator <laughs> in that sense. I mean, I don't think actually that anything I'm doing is so innovative. I think actually what I'm doing is I'm taking bits and pieces of all the other great, awesome stuff that other people have done. <laughs> and really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a, a coherent framework <laughs> that we can put all these different awesome pieces of, of things, you know, into you know, like concepts like a non-extractive business, you know, I, I I cannot lay claim to this at all. I mean, you know, Islamic finance has been on that topic for, uh, you know, <laughs> some number of centuries already. I mean, uh, certainly uh, Muhammad Yunus also with this concept of social business. I mean, he's certainly been on this for quite some, some time as well, uh, but also so many other pieces. I mean, degrowth, post-growth, donut, but also just so many ideas, you know, I mean, zebras and I mean, also just social enterprise itself and the entire legacy, you know, I mean, even from B Corps, you know, uh, uh, up through steward ownership, I think nothing in isolation is perfect. Uh, but I do think, though, that if we take the entire palette of different tools that we have, I mean, also co-ops and uh, but also, you know, sustainable finance, I think if we look at things with an honest lens, everything has uh, strengths, everything has weaknesses. So really, I mean, I think that what I'm trying to do here is I'm just trying to bring a little bit of order uh, to the chaos. <laughs> I'm trying to provide a bit of a, a useful taxonomy of, uh, of those things that are out there. And for me, at least I'm trying to create some kind of a, a running narrative through it all that, uh, that makes sense. And I'm also trying to give people the framework and also the courage uh, to also be able to take entrepreneurial action uh, on that framework, <laughs> uh, because I think that's the other important bit. It's not just uh, that we need uh, yet another theoretical methodology, but I really think we need a mobilized community of professionals, of entrepreneurs, also of finance uh, professionals and investors that are willing to 
take action, right? And that are willing to put their their money and their time and their energy where their mouth is. And and that's what I would see myself as trying to help uh, move along. So just simply, <laughs> it's so beautiful. You're just painted the curriculum that people should have a look at if they're interested in that ecosystem and. I loved how you are a system integrator, um, really paying tribute to what has been done, but also in all humility saying, well, there are, you know, it's not just as obvious. There are good, good things, bad things happening all around them. And we need to take a seat, you know, to step back and have a look at how all of this is integrating. But I wonder for, for you to be a curious system integrator and, and a great curator all of these beautiful things that are available to us. Now, what motivated you to be and think this way? Well, I mean, originally, I uh, I mean, I came at this quite uh, circuitously because I, I started my career as an IT professional. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I am a computer scientist. I've been in cybersecurity for well over 20 years. Um, that is my actual background. And I started a company myself out of what I felt was really necessity because I was not very happy with how commercial cybersecurity companies are. And also, I have some... Yeah, differences sometimes with uh, some of the uh, you know, behaviors uh, that they uh, that they show. I mean, things like uh, cyber warfare and uh, I mean, selling uh, zero day vulnerabilities to nation states. It's, it's selling weapons, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, hacking activists like Greenpeace, you know, because uh, <laughs> they're so scary, you know. You know, what I really wanted was just to create a kind of social enterprise in the cybersecurity space. But then, of course, I asked the question, well, yeah, but what's a social enterprise? And uh, yeah, everyone shrugs, shrugs their shoulders because nobody really knows what social enterprise means anymore. Because, you know, we we profess to have our triple bottom line of people, planet, profit. But uh, as Mohammed Yunus says, you know, anytime there is a, a conflict between people and planet versus profit, profit always wins. It's just a question of uh, to what degree. So, you know, after trying things and uh, talking to people, I kind of started getting the idea that, well, maybe actually it's it's the profit itself and maybe it's the incentive structures uh, that are actually governing all these uh, horrible externalities, you know, that we're getting, you know, in this, this misbehavior of companies, whether it's in cyber or whether it's gas and oil or whether it's uh, education or whether it's a big tech company. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I think the the root cause is the same, you know, and that was, uh, you know, over the years, the conclusions that I started drawing. I mean, also uh, just entrepreneurially speaking, I mean, I started with no business background whatsoever. <laughs> um, you know. Welcome to the club. <laughs> but you figure it out, right? You know, and after about uh, four or five years of being a, a tech CEO, I started realizing, you know, at the very beginning, I thought, hmm, this doesn't make any sense. And then like after a number of years, I was like, well, actually, no, this does make sense, but not for me. <laughs> And the more you learn, you know, and then you, you you meet people, you talk to people, you know, you start getting into the rest of the uh, innovation ecosystem, the venture capital ecosystem. And of course, uh, then also you start thinking, hmm, you know, well, these incentive structures are very, uh, very interesting. <laughs> and uh, to be polite, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I read um, somewhere he said, when growth stops, Companies burning through other people's capital will find themselves in trouble. What did you mean in practice? I don't remember saying it in those exact words, but uh, I think I can explain the idea. 
most companies these days are trained to yeah, live off of other people's money. I can't say it any other way mm -hmm. because the way that we're innovating uh, with startups in our current startup ecosystem, I mean, we our startup ecosystem is a lottery for investors. Uh, we know statistically speaking that uh, of course, uh, nine out of 10 startups are gonna fail. That's why the 10th of course has to uh, knock out, a, out of the park uh, and preferably uh, become a unicorn. But in order to become that big, that quickly, of course, uh, that requires super fast growth, including super fast hiring. And people, of course, are uh, one of the most expensive costs uh, that uh, a company can have. And there's very few ways that the uh, actual revenue of a company can keep up with that rate of hiring. Mm -hmm. You know, we're also subsidizing uh, customer acquisition, <laughs> And uh, the problem is, of course, uh, as you grow, if you're in the red, I mean, as you grow, you just, you're burning cash faster, <laughs> you know, and this leads to the uh, familiar situations with the, uh, with WeWork, of course, and some companies never grow out of it. I mean, certainly a lot of the, the giant unicorns, I mean, 90% of them are cash losing. Mm -hmm. have always been cash losing and probably will remain cash losing. <laughs> and yet uh, they still survive. And then not enough people ask how, and also certainly not, any, not enough people ask whose money are they spending. <laughs> and really what's happening, of course, is that also in the cybersecurity industry, we have a lot of market leaders that uh, have never seen a cent of profit in their entire existence. And the problem, the problem here is that they are not actually, oh, hello. Oh, we've Sorry. got a cat coming in. <laughs> <laughs> so let me explain what happened here. As she was sharing the absurd and yet too common fact that many companies have been heavily invested in, but are just bleeding cash and for some never making a profit, Roca the cat came about to greet Melanie as they had been separated and Melanie just returned from a trip. Melanie tried to lure her away with some tricks, but that didn't work. And that went on for a while. So I'm just going to fast forward us to our next point, which is underpinning Melanie's work and teaching. And it's about stopping extractive practices. So Melanie, you advocate post-growth entrepreneurship a business model in which not growth, but impact is the key metric for success. Actually, your own IT security business, Radically Open Security, is bootstrapped from the start and donates 90% of its proceedings to NLNet, the Dutch foundation that is campaigning for an open, inclusive internet. So by believing that startups should focus on impact rather than just massive scaling and expensive exits, it feels like you want to put impact investors a bit on a naughty step. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's about more than just putting impact first, <laughs> because I, I think actually that really impact in that sense needs to be, well, everything. Because as long as, again, you have the triple bottom line of people, planet, profit, as long as you have that tension uh, between the people and the planet and the profit, uh, the profit will always... <laughs> play, you know, some kind of a uh, perverse incentive, um, which would cause businesses to uh, externalize costs onto society and onto the planet. So really what I think we need to do instead is really think about making businesses financially non-extractive. And what exactly do I mean by this? I think that uh, there are moments where 
financial value is pulled out of businesses. So of course, uh, the the largest case of this typically is during um, exits, you know, liquidation events, IPOs, uh, merger and acquisition uh, activity. You know, we're treating our companies really just like, yeah, I mean, financial institutions in that sense, because as I was saying before about uh, large cybersecurity companies that have uh, never made <laughs> a cent of profit in their own existence, What's happening here is that because they're burning through cash and they're in the red and they have actually no prospects uh, of getting out of the red, um, their business model is actually equity, right? And, you know, in that sense, I mean, these companies are basically, um, yeah, I mean, they're performing their own MMT, right? <laughs> I mean, they're, you know... Uh, just uh, creating these shares that they that they can sell. This is their primary business model. So what we have is companies that are sort of posing as if they are in a certain industry. It could be cybersecurity, for example, right. things like uh, building uh, network monitoring appliances. But the truth is they're not actually making their money off of this, <laughs> off of whatever product or service uh, that they're selling. <laughs> and the problem here then is that their primary source of, uh, of revenue actually is, is selling equity. <laughs> and that really becomes quite problematic because as long as we're in a growth economy, it's all good. But then the moment that the Fed decides to uh, raise the interest rates and then the uh, free money dries up, then, of course, the whole uh, house of cards collapses. This is what we've seen uh, in the last few years. And it's precisely the companies that have a business model that are the ones that will survive. But the other problem, of course, that we also have is that the fact that these companies that are posing as, you know, having some product or service in some particular industry, but in, in, in truth, they're actually functioning like these small financial institutions. It is deforming markets because um, companies that actually survive off of customer revenue, they need to make ends meet by selling things, you know, and what that means is the unit, unit economics needs make sense. Uh, but the problem is if these companies that are surviving off of customer revenue have to compete against these money losing zombies that occupy the market and yet survive, this also deforms uh, the market and it causes markets uh, to really evolve um, incorrectly and, and misshapen. So you're describing, I mean, it's if it was a, a painting, I know you're in Amsterdam, so there's plenty of reference here. You're painting some canvas, some dystopian canvas. Actually, it's what is reality now. And I sense a lot of that sense of care and, and equality and fairness from you and just trying to make sure that we need to look at that and try to balance it out and put a bit of justice in that. I wonder what other ideas are making investors a bit queasy, but could actually challenge them to think differently about the use of their money or actually our money. I don't really want to make anybody queasy. I just want to get people curious. Yeah. Because I think that investors have a very large opportunity to really blaze new paths. <laughs> because the problem that we have right now, I mean, everyone, I think, pretty much universally knows that we've got problems. 
I mean, socially, we have problems. Environmentally, we have problems. Uh, you can believe what you may, but uh, and have any political orientation that you might. But uh, but you know, many people are, are discontented now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think most of us also recognize that um, business and finance is at the heart of this. However, I think we're also not entirely recognizing why, and specifically how we can make things better. You have sustainable finance, right? And we have our ESG and our impact investment and our carbon credits and our blue bonds. And yet most sustainable finance professionals also understand, you know, there is an open secret that much of what we're selling here is greenwashed, which leads to cognitive dissonance. Because I really truly believe that most people in the sustainable finance area have good intentions. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're attracted to sustainable finance precisely because it's less toxic <laughs> than uh, than traditional finance. And yet, you know, we've got, you know, blended finance with absurd risk premiums. You know, I mean, when you're selling products with 10% premiums, you can't even pretend anymore. And the problem here is that uh, that financial extraction is the greenwashing. But as long as we're <laughs> spending... Um, so much time really thinking that we can sort of do well by doing good. You know, it's just like, of course, uh, from the book Winners Take All by uh, Ananda Jiriharadas, where he speaks about the term doing well by doing good. How well do we have to be doing uh, while we're doing good? Um, the problem is that I think throughout the entire finance industry, we're used, I mean, to they're, they're used to a certain level of living, <laughs> right? You know, and, and a certain amount of bonuses and, and just the, the compensation structures, you know, the, the, the fee structures, 220 is pervasive everywhere. I mean, you know, 2% asset under management fee, 20% carried interest, maybe, okay, maybe in some cases it'll be a little bit more or a little bit less, but mostly it's pretty market conform. And, and yet uh, that we, we just don't consider <laughs> Things like with the 20% carried interest, it, it's embedding the growth imperative into startups. You know, also with impact VCs, because as long as impact VC is using the same 220 as commercial VCs, basically get to keep 20% of the, the value of exits, well, then of course we're going to be, you know, influencing our impact startups to to sell to, to Unilever. <laughs> You know, I mean, it just the whole incentive structure is not setting things up for long-term thinking when precisely what we need is, is, you know, growth curves, you know, we're basically not thinking in terms of exponentials, but we're precisely thinking of in terms of uh, organic and flat growth curves. But the, you know, if you take that 20% carried interest and you get rid of it, then at that point, it's totally fine for a uh, for a VC to just say, no worries, it's totally fine if you just, uh, you know, architect for the long term and perhaps maybe there isn't an exit at all. Maybe instead the LPs can can get their returns some other way. Maybe there can be some, some form of debt financing, you know, rather than you know, relying upon uh, exits uh, to get multiples. And and it's just, it's slower, but it's it's more sustainable. And, and look, I mean, I'm not against LPs getting their returns. I think, you know, pensioners need to be able to retire. <laughs> you know, and I think, uh, you know, being able to get some returns for that system is not a problem. Uh, but what I do think is the problem, though, is also, I mean, considering with the 2% management fees, I mean, look, if you're a tiny fund manager, it's not going to be that much. But if you're BlackRock, <laughs> the, the amounts are are crazy, you know, and 
the this precise conflict of interest that we have between the fund managers and the investors, of course, John Bogle used to talk about this all the time. And that was part of the reason why he invented um basically the uh the index fund. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, he was trying to create a financial product that via this kind of passive tracking of the stock market, that it could make the fees cheap enough that it would essentially drive them practically down to zero. This has succeeded. I mean, I believe there are some prudential uh, index funds uh, that literally have zero fees, (laughs) you know, as a loss leader granted. And of course, when people originally heard the idea of this kind of, uh, of the index fund with, with low fees, I mean, they called it Bogle's folly, right? (laughs) Bogle's folly. Bogle's folly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Bogle's folly indeed, right? I mean, passive investment index funds and their superset ETFs are now 35% uh, of all investment uh, globally. And of course, Vanguard is uh, is now one of the th- big three asset managers. <laughs> so, I mean, clearly uh, he had the last laugh. But what this demonstrates, though, is the whole concept of, of sort of almost nonprofit finance, <laughs> you know, is uh, actually has quite a, quite a, a storied legacy. <laughs> mm. uh, it's not to say that Vanguard didn't get some mission drift, you know, in the years since. I mean, it remains a commercial company. And that's also, I think, uh, in part the problem. You can also have founders that have really great intentions, but oftentimes if things are not locked in with legal belts and braces, when they hand things off to the next generation, um, mission drift can be uh, introduced. And that's how you secure, you, you avoided mission drift in your own company by putting some quite strict terms in place, right, Melanie? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the the uh, belts and braces that we need the majority of the time is uh, is called steward ownership. Mm-hmm. So basically, doing things like foundation ownership, <laughs> uh, my my company certainly is using this. I mean, I a very long time ago, I basically gave my company away for one euro to a foundation. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, we also donate ninety uh, percent of our profits to charity. We are registered as something called a fiscal fundraising institution, mm-hmm. which is kind of a Dutch uh, tax construction from the the church, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. which long story short, uh, kind of forces companies to donate 90% of, or more of their profits uh, to a certified charity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically we have been operating this way for quite a long time. I think another essential component is something called a golden share. Uh, which is something that can prevent uh, the company from being sold. It's a kind of poison pill, like a veto, uh, that can prevent uh, directors or the board from uh, from selling the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would you do this? Of course, if you talk about uh, preventing exits from happening, this already, I think, gets the majority of the finance industry confused because Exits are everything. <laughs> that's right. That's what the queasiness mention was about earlier on in the in the recording. And yet, what are we doing this for? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, finance along with business is human organization. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're we're moving resources around to ensure that that things that society needs can can happen. And you know, I mean, I believe. Uh, I mean, most of the people in the finance industry already, you know, realize that finance is a good servant, but not a good master. (laughs) And things have already moved in this direction, of course. Um, But I think that if we can implement our funds, for example, using steward ownership, foundation-owned funds. This sounds really crazy, but there are some fund managers that are doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you consider, for example, 
the Purpose Foundation in Germany and Purpose Ventures. I mean, they have uh, basically um, one startup fund, one seed fund, and one growth fund. And uh, both of them are applying these principles of steward ownership to the funds themselves <laughs> uh, to basically ensure that really, you know, the only fees that are getting taken out of this whole vehicle are just what's required to operate, you know, the fund, assuming middle-class salaries and a pension, and everything above and beyond that gets recycled back into the fund. So the fund can actually focus on what it really is intended to do, which is, in this particular case, stimulating impact businesses. Uh, same thing also with uh, Snowball Impact Management in uh, in London uh, from Daniela Baroni Suarez. You know, she also... Same thing, you know, uh, foundation-owned fund. Uh, she also took the 220 and she also reformed it. She got rid of the 20% carried interest and, uh, you know, changed the 2% into the cost of running the business, assuming middle-class salaries and a pension. Uh, she basically created a not-for-profit investment fund, you know, very similarly to the way that I made Radically Open Security, also a not-for-profit cybersecurity company. And what we understand is these these fund managers are thought leaders <laughs> because this is what we really need to be doing with our finance. <laughs> and I don't believe that everyone is going to immediately um, be convincible <laughs> uh, to move in this direction because, of course, as things are right now, there's there's so many vested interests. And, and there's a, again, there's a certain standard of living that people are used to that they're not necessarily willing to give up. Mm. Yet, I mean, look, uh, let, let's be pragmatic here. I mean, we need, right now, there's only a handful of these kinds of examples, and I think we need many more of them. And even a well-established fund manager has very little to lose by starting a small experimental fund on the side that just experiments with governance structures and incentives. Mm. You know, if they want to continue running all the rest of their financially <laughs> extractive funds uh, the way they have been, fine, but at least just try it. <laughs> it's called thought leadership. <laughs> You know, and 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 you know, you you don't have to sacrifice that much. But what we at least need are more role models because once we can start seeing more of these role models pop up, a few things will happen. I mean, first, it will start that discussion about incentives <laughs> and compensation structures that so badly needs to happen, and we need to start shifting this Overton window of uh, what's considered acceptable and normal. <laughs> we also need to start getting limited partners to understand that um, this stuff does not necessarily make things more risky. <laughs> because of course, as things are right now, anything that's new, anything that's different is automatically perceived as risky. What perplexes me even more is if you talk about reforming fees, like getting rid of the 20% carried interest, very quickly, they will start talking about incentive misalignment which completely perplexes me because like, hello, you want to pay more fees? I mean, a greedy fund manager is not necessarily going to get better results. And anyhow, I mean, 90% of fund managers as it is, or at least with VCs, fail to keep pace with the stock market. <laughs> I mean, they can't compete with an index fund. So I think that given the fact that you know pension money anyhow is going to sort of build the world <laughs> that we're going to live in, especially the institutional investors need to start understanding that they, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And as much as pensioners, of course, do want the returns, which oftentimes anyway, they're practically getting, not getting, 
But, uh, you know, th there are also multiple ways to interpret fiduciary responsibility. <laughs> On top of that, I mean, what good is multiplying returns when, we're, you know, of, of some 18-year-old uh, with a job when we're also busy ruining that same world uh, that the 18-year-old is going to inherit? And look, I'm not saying, though, that you're going to get less returns by a non-extractive vehicle. I think it's exactly the opposite. Low fees means more for the limited partners. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing to, to dislike about this. It's the fund manager that's making the sacrifice, not the LPs. The other thing also is that you're reducing the conflict of interest between the GPs and the LPs, and uh, that is de-risking the whole thing. So basically what this means is better risk-adjusted returns. Mm, thank you so much. What I've heard is that you're sharing some punk-wise and audacious by punk as in you question whatever is happening here. Why is you showing the way? And audacious would say, well, you got to step out. So great call to action. And I hope these ideas um, and these models could uh, help germinate more action in the investment sector and from the, uh, across the spectrum especially if we are to lean into a post-growth world. Yeah. So I wonder if there's any more that you encourage or invite the investing community to think about to, to step up to the systemic challenges we're facing as a word of closure for our time together. Yeah. I think there's a lot of different roles that people can play depending on what position they're in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if people are... Uh, you know, again, GPs step up and be entrepreneurial. If if you're a high net worth individual, understand that uh, you might have more control over your money and what you can do with this money than some other people. So use that, you know, to be able to support these kinds of small fund managers that are doing non-traditional things, because your participation also helps to crowd in uh, others, you know, because you're also in part de-risking it also for, uh, for larger players. We need to get at least one of these experimental fund managers uh, to a billion, <laughs> uh, because they all have, you know, this chicken egg problem that as long as they're below this, they are not taken seriously uh, and they're perceived as being too risky. And it's just the psychological barrier that I think a lot of limited partners anyhow have, not to mention with diversification rules. So that, that's another thing. I think we also need to consider also for the institutionals uh, what uh, sort of systemic factors are also preventing them from uh, supporting the creation of such an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I think we need to look at uh, board members. Mm -hmm. Where are they coming from? How are they getting sourced? Is there enough diversity? Uh, <laughs> and I'm not just talking gender diversity or age diversity, but also just in general diversity of thought. Other questions like how are these board members being trained? You know, I mean, we're sending them all to INSEAD and that's great, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, but we need also some other uh, places where they can also learn about alternative economics and, and other forms of uh, well, other other alternative approaches, and there also need to be service providers uh, that uh, that can provide this, these educations. This is also a call to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of sourcing and recruiting, we need recruiting companies <laughs> that uh, that that can step up uh, to this challenge of providing these kinds of alternative board members. Oh. I, I think also we need to consider other things, like if you're at a pension fund, let's consider uh, procurement criteria for asset managers. 
because asset managers are also the ones that are engaging the companies. <laughs> and oftentimes that that engagement is incredibly ineffective. You know, it's just frequently a checkbox ticking exercise. Like, did we send them a letter? Yes, we sent them the letter. I mean, you know, but come on. I mean, we, we can do better than this. Much better. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to actually make space for these smaller fund managers to be able to get a foothold. But Part of it starts indeed with with procurement criteria and compliance, and a another part of it also requires looking at uh, due diligence, because why is it that you would give you know the uh, assignment in the end you know to to a BlackRock and not to a Triodos you know for example I mean frequently I think Triodos is just too, too small <laughs> um, you know with the perceived risk uh, that comes with this, and I think also that in many capacities just the due diligence criterion already crosses them off the list. But why, right? I mean, could it be actually that our compliance rules are so strict that we're preventing innovations from happening? <laughs> because, you know, having a more social ecosystem where we also are reducing conflicts of interest uh, also, uh, or we can get more meaningful engagement with better intentions, this is better for everyone. I mean, good governance matters, you know, and good stewardship matters. But this requires pioneering. And, and I think also getting those in institutional investors to understand that they are in a position where they can do this innovation. And, and we need to look at the compensation structures also of those fund managers <laughs> uh, to also make sure that they're not getting compensated for short-term gains. And yet there's also so little transparency uh, also surrounding uh, compensation uh, also within these institutional investors. So really, I think what we have, you know, I mean, and, and for, for uh, those that are outside of the finance industry, we need lawsuits, mm. <laughs> you know, because we also need really great jurisprudence, you know, particularly on topics like fiduciary responsibility. <laughs> you know, and, and I can point you also to wonderful lawsuits uh, like, uh, you know, James McRitchie and uh, Shareholder Commons, you know, in their lawsuit uh, against Meta that are basically suing Meta because, uh, you know, basically messing around with democracy is bad for their uh, returns as a universal shareholder. <laughs> yeah, that's the least of could do yes <laughs> wow so melanie thank you so much for giving us a great call to action to a, an army of companies entrepreneurs institutional legal recruiters investors lp fund managers everybody to just you know wake up you know jump in the boots and go and march <laughs> because there's a lot of work to do this i mean it was hard to cram all this goodness in such a, a small podcast Thank you so much for, for being with us. And I strongly encourage you all to watch the post-growth entrepreneurship course on YouTube, which we, as well, frustratingly can't cram into this short time together. We'll leave the link in the notes. Now, we look forward to welcoming you back to the House of Trust again. Don't miss the, the next episodes. And also look back to the previous episodes. Melanie just mentioned Daniela baroni Suarez from Snowball. She was also a guest on this episode. And there's a nice one on governance. There's a dance of governance that you can listen to with uh, Karen Lee Anderson. It was also in one of our previous episodes. And you see, all of this is forming a canvas where you can make sense of what's uh, available in the sector, but also what we can do actively to change and to, to have more agency as well. 
So subscribe to the show anywhere you can. Find your, your favorite podcast, share it, review it. It's enormously helpful for more insights and opportunities to think independently for yourself and as yourself and explore meaningful and impactful futures. Head to my website, sevenmoisin.co.uk or start a conversation with us all on social media. I really look forward to, to uh, this conversation with you all, people who love to invest in social and environmental change. Melanie, it was a pleasure having you today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you as well for the invite. And bye-bye.